You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. House plants, indoor plants, interior plants, whatever you call them, they're plants that have adapted to thrive in interior plantscapes. Whether that's in a shopping centre, an office cubicle or your apartment. We've discussed interior plantscapes in episode 79 with Gabby Stannis, but in this episode I wanted to dive into the topic from the perspective of somebody who's never been formally trained, and has been winging it for all these years. Maybe you're a little bit like that. Maybe you love being surrounded by indoor plants, but you don't really understand how to choose a good plant from the nursery, and then you don't really know what the plant needs once you get it into position. Jane Perona is the perfect person to speak about this subject. She's the host of one of the great plant podcasts, On The Ledge, which was an influence on me when I started in 2020. Jane and I cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, so pay attention. I asked a lot of broad questions, and Jane brought incredible detail to her responses, so you'll get macro and micro detail. You might even like to listen to this episode more than once and take notes so that you retain all of the relevant info and it's available when you need it. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you. Good to be here. So I guess today we're not going to focus on the specifics of each type of indoor plant. We're really going to take a broad overview. So can you start with what are the characteristics of an indoor microclimate and are all indoor environments the same? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a biggie. We're talking on a global scale here because, you know, everybody throughout the world, where whatever their outdoor climate can grow houseplants. So I guess the simple answer is the indoor microclimate globally varies a lot less than our gardens do in different countries and continents. But there are still differences. And I think one of the big differences is whether you have air conditioning running. So in countries where you've got air con on the go for a lot of the year, Obviously, that changes the environment considerably. It also depends on what kind of heating systems you're using in your home and just also cultural things about how warm your home usually is. <laughs> um, mm. So I think and generational things, too. I know, uh, you know, a lot of older people, you know, don't keep their homes toasty warm because that's just not how they were brought up. So there's all these different variables which can affect things like temperature and also air humidity, which is obviously vital for houseplants. Plus also light. You know, if you are of the generation where you must have net curtains or blinds or some kind of extra covering, um, then that's going to affect light levels in your home. If you're more of a minimalist, perhaps um, from the generation below me, the millennials, you might you might have your window completely bare. So there's lots of different factors that come in to affect that microclimate. And it does vary throughout the year if you're not, if unless you're in a tropical environment, of course, where um, it's going to be pretty steady. But light levels inside do vary greatly throughout the year. And the most important thing I always say to people is light levels are just massively lower anywhere indoors than they are outdoors. And that's something really important to take into account when you're growing houseplants. What a great point. And the humidity one was something that I think trips a lot of people up too, in that some plants, for some reason, they don't know why until you learn about this, that some plants thrive in the in the shower because of that humidity. Yeah, I mean, there's a, such a broad spectrum of 
plants species that you can grow as houseplants. So even if your air is bone dry, there will be a plant that will survive and thrive mm. in that environment. And oftentimes it's interesting, particularly on social media, I think people assume that we're just talking about tropical plants when we're talking about houseplants. And of course, those tropical plants do need humid air or do yeah. desire that humid air. And when we're talking about relative humidity, I suppose I'd be saying I'd like my home to be sitting around 40 to 50% uh, relative humidity. But some of those really desirable anthuriums, anthuriums and so on might be looking for, you know, 60, 70, 80% humidity. And that's why some growers of those kind of aroids and other tropical plants opt for a greenhouse cabinet scenario where they can really control conditions um, via various devices that they put in there to make sure the environment is exactly right for these very desirable houseplants. That brings us on to our next point nicely. So you're talking about those tropical plants. We love to grow them indoors. They have big, beautiful, you know, leathery, waxy leaves. But where did these plants come from? I mean, I guess we throw the term houseplant on them, but they didn't really evolve in the house, did they? No, I mean, it's so fascinating to go back and look at the history of how these plants have ended up in our homes. And I think we have the tendency in the current houseplant boom to think that they are, in inverted commas, new and that this is the first mm. time they've been seen in homes. Whereas, in fact, you know, the Victorians were bringing a lot of these things over to Europe from South America and also Central America and also Southeast Asia in the 1800s. It varies from species to species when they arrived on our shores, but very quickly they became part of the Victorian houseplant scene. Obviously, and going back to the microclimate point, but at the time, Victorians were somewhat limited with what they could grow in their houses because their houses were very polluted. <laughs> the air was very polluted mm. because of the um, lighting they were using and also colder than our houses. So they generally grew those tropical plants in what they used to call stove houses, which were basically heated greenhouses. But these plants were becoming very, very popular very, very quickly in the 1800s, even so. Uh, and we've kind of gone through cycles of of loving these houseplants. A lot of these tropical species that we know and love, we th I think we think they all come from South America, but that's not entirely true. Monstra deliciosa, the Swiss cheese plant, is actually from um, Mexico and Guatemala, Central America, um, and has been naturalized around the world in lots of locations. So there's, yeah, there's a really rich history behind these plants, which is kind of waiting to be uncovered, really. I, in fact, we'll talk about my book a bit later, but that's part of what I'm trying to do in my book, Legends of the Leaf. Well, maybe you could talk about that now, Jane. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a book about 25 iconic houseplant species. And it does just what I've been talking about, looking at these plants in the round, not just saying, oh, look, this needs bright indirect light, but actually delving back into how these plants grow in the wild, the environments in which they grow, uh, how they came into cultivation in the West, how also how indigenous people in the places where those plants grow in the wild, if if they use them and how they use them. And a lot of that information is something that you probably won't read in the average houseplant guide. So it's a real joy to dig into the histories of these plants and find out a bit more about them. And I, what's an iconic houseplant? Well, I kind of picked them myself. Um, but I think what I would say is that most of the species are things that 
even people who don't really know about houseplants would recognize, if not be able to name. So the classics like the peace lily, spathophyllum, which is hard to say, um, obviously the Swiss cheese plant, the spider plant, chlorophytum camosum, the kentia palm, Harrier fosteriana, some of these really classic species that we're used to seeing in our homes. But actually, kind of familiarity has bred contempt a little bit, and we don't really know how amazing they are. Yeah, right. I think it's really nice to shine a light on the really easy to grow and popular plants. I mean, I think a lot of people are really chasing the, you know, the most, the fanciest new whatever, but I think let's take it back to basics and let's really focus on those tried and tested indoor plants. Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why these plants have, (laughs) are growing everywhere. And I think oftentimes people do become very blasé about them and don't really appreciate their beauty because, Yes, you can have a spider plant pretty much anywhere, but can you make a spider plant look amazing? Well, yes, if you put some effort in, you can make an absolute showstopper of a spider plant mm. that will look amazing. And they're, they're, there's a reason why they're so popular, and it's because out of many, many species within that plant family, that species is one that really is so adaptable and can cope with an immense amount of, well, let's just say conditions rather different than how they grow in the wild. And that's why Mm. those plants are so popular. Um, And you can grow them badly or you can grow them well, or you can kind of let them limp along, or you can really put effort into it and create an amazing specimen. So they are, they're kind of putty in our hands really these plants they have the capacity to be truly outstanding house plants and just because they're really common doesn't mean we shouldn't be enjoying them and mm. also you know the other thing i love about a lot of these plants is that they are plants that are generally handed around between family and friends in a way that I find really fascinating. They're often generous in the way they propagate. So something like the spider plant, obviously it produces those runners with um, baby plants on the end, which you can leave on or you can remove and give to other people, root. Um, Similarly, the Chinese money plant uh, is another plant that has spread that way, often called the friendship plant. Uh, Incredible plant that's been spread around the world and at a time when actually botanists didn't really know what it was. Um, you know, it was, it was, and it was, there's a long story, which I tell in the book about that plant, but it's just the most generous plant producing all these babies and everybody loves to give those away to other friends and family. And it's just a stonking good house plant, really. Very well said. So can you tell us now about indoor potting mixture? What are we looking at there? It's not really exactly like the soil you'll find out in your garden, is it? Well, you know, going back to the um, common houseplants, I've seen a fair few houseplants in my time that have been clearly just potted in garden soil and have survived. <laughs> Amazing, really. But yes, you best practice says you should be using something a bit different for your houseplants. This really varies according to going back to the microclimate. You need to consider what your home is like when you're thinking about the substrate. Now, um, soil-based substrates are to some extent being replaced by non-organic sub by mineral substrates, non-organic substrates like pond and laker and semi-hydroponic systems which is great. There are so many options now. I am a soil-based houseplant gardener on for the vast majority of my plants. Uh, and what I try to do when I'm thinking about substrates is think about, again, how that plant grows in the wild and how I could mimic 
those conditions indoors. Now, an awful lot of houseplants grow as epiphytes, so plants that grow on other plants, often trees. And so their root balls are usually relatively small, but also they are used to conditions where they might get extremely wet for a brief amount of time, and then the water will drain away extremely quickly away from the tree. So they're not left sitting in tons of water. So that means you need to try to emulate that free draining nature, be generous with the water, but allow that water to run away swiftly. So I take a base of a peat-free multipurpose substrate with John, with added John Innes, which I can buy here in the UK. I'm very much, um, I don't know what the situation where you are with peat is, but here in the UK, we're making great strides in trying to rid the horticultural industry of peat, which is a, a real problem it's a it's basically causing mm. adding to climate change problems and destroying peat bogs so i'm really passionate about peat free houseplant compost mm-hmm. so i use this base of of a peat free multi-purpose with added john innes and then to that i add various substrate uh amendments shall we call them so if i'm trying to improve drainage i might be adding things like horticultural grit i might be adding perlite i might be adding expanded clay pebbles or laker and those will help with drainage if i'm trying to change the structure of the soil to emulate uh, an epiphytes condition maybe i'll add something like fine orchid bark as well to that mix uh, every houseplant grower has their own little recipe for mm-hmm. for this and my approach is very non-scientific but i try to make sure that drainage is really good because then I can water more generously. And I find that works really well. Things like begonias, oftentimes people, I used to struggle really badly with foliage begonias indoors and particularly the sort of Rex types. And I learned from other begonia growers that the secret really is to water them really generously, but just make sure that drainage is super sharp And even to the extent of putting holes in the side of the pot, just to make sure that there's loads of air circulating and they often sit in a a wick watering system where they've got pebbles underneath and they can draw up water through a wick from those pebbles. And that works an absolute treat. And the substrate, I mean, I always say the roots and the substrate of a plant are where it's at. Don't worry so much about the leaves, but if you get the root system right via a good substrate and watering you're going to be successful. I mean, we haven't talked about light, which is the other big thing, but yeah, yeah you've got to, you've got to factor in all these things. But that, that, all of that said, as I said at the beginning of this question, there are amazing houseplants that thrive in the worst substrates you've ever seen. And so, you know, there's always somebody who'll say to me, but Jane, you know, I haven't repotted my Christmas cactus for 20 years and it's doing great. And you have to say, well, yeah, that's houseplants for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think as well, a good horticulturist will actually make their own potting mix just because, you know, I don't want to have to buy all these different types of mixtures for different types of plants I want to grow. So like you say, I'll add perlite in if I want more drainage. I'll add always add in worm castings and some compost. But yeah, you know, if I want to hold some more of that moisture in there, maybe I won't put as much perlite in or maybe I'll put a bit more compost in or something like that. But uh, for me personally, I would love to just put in organic fertilizers inside the house, but my wife's not really such a big fan of the smell. So we tend to go Uh with synthetic fertilizers indoors. 
Yeah, I mean, it's to be honest, I think people worry a great deal about exactly what fertilizers they're using. Just remember to fertilize is the main thing I would say, Um, because lots of people just don't do that enough or um, are erratic with their fertilizing of plants. And I mean, I guess my approach is the other thing I find is that lots of people are terrified of living things in their houseplants. So people don't want any sign that their plant mm. might be in part of some kind of ecosystem in, that <laughs> might involve springtails or some kind of soil mite. They they just they don't want to see that. There's a creepy crawly. I often see see people you know posting pictures of something they found in their houseplant compost, and people will say, "Burn it with fire." I'm like, gosh, you know, really like maybe find out what the heck it is first before you make that decision. Because actually a lot of those creatures are doing an enormous amount of good. (laughs) Just like the fungi. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, people panic about little uh, fungi growing in their houseplant pots. I say, you know, bring it on. It's fine. Mm -hmm. As long as you don't let, you know, your dog start eating them. Um, Most of the time, these things are not a problem. And, you know, yes, we have to be really aware of the issue of creatures that do suck the sap of our plants and harm them. But let's identify whether that's what we're dealing with first before you bring on the big guns (laughs) in terms of treatments. Very well said. Okay, Jane, so picture me now. I'm sitting you know, at the, I'm standing with my trolley. I've got my perlite, I've got my potting mixture and I've got my uh, expanded clay. Now I'm looking at the plants and I'm thinking, okay, so how do I choose a healthy plant? Can you walk us through some of the different signs that we need to look at? Um, you know, whether that's in the leaves below the, in the root ball, like what are we looking at? How do we tell Mm. which plant we should take? It's, that there's so many factors here, but the first one I would say is if you can, don't impulse buy. Don't just see that beautiful right. Medanilla Magnifica and think, oh, look at that. The amazing flowers on that. I've got to have it because it's going to lead you to heartbreak. <laughs> it really is going to break your heart. So if you can do a little bit of research, even if it's while you're standing there with your phone, you know, using Google Lens to, to figure out what a plant is and just finding out a little bit about what kind of conditions it needs, that's the first step um, to success with houseplants. And once you've got past that point and you kind of think, well, yeah, okay, I can deliver the south-facing window that this succulent needs, Mm. or actually probably north facing sorry you're you're in the other part of the world but anyway <laughs> a sunny window sill you know what i'm saying i'm such a northern hemisphere um oriented yeah. person um <laughs> so once you've kind of got a clue that you can provide the conditions the plant needs in terms of light then and maybe you've got i don't know maybe there's three or four of these succulents sitting there that you need to assess and choose which one you want to take the first thing i would say is have a look at the overall health of the plant, look for anything that looks like there's damage to the plant. And oftentimes plants undergo physical damage when they're in the shop. And, you know, depending on the type of plant, that can be a no big deal or a massive deal. So for example, if you've got a columnar cactus that's got damage on it because it's been knocked or fallen over, that's not going to change. That's going to stay exactly as it is. Mm. If you've got, you know, um, a fern that's got some damage to leaves. And of course that plant's just going to replace those leaves. So think about what damage is there and whether that damage is going to be a permanent 
issue for the plant. Have a look for any signs of pests, especially places like underside of the leaves where spider mites like to hang out. And also at any new growth points where often sap sucking insects tend to dwell. So check for pests. And then I'm the kind of rude person in the shop who literally like upends that plant, Mm. takes it out of the pot and looks at the roots. Obviously not possible in a huge plant, but often I want to see what's going on at root level. You know, is that plant so root bound that it's already incredibly stressed? Um, Is there any sign of root mealybugs on that plant? Uh, do does this what's the substrate is it in all of these things you can have a look at and root health is for me even more important than foliage health and I'd be also looking for root rot has the plant been sitting in loads of water and is that substrate kind of smelly and um, stagnant and are the roots starting to rot because those kind of problems are the problems you don't want to start with when you're bringing home a plant very well said. I think that that's basically exactly what I do as well. Did you mention etiolation? I didn't, but that's another good point. So a plant that might have been sitting in a dark, you know, a lot of places where uh, house plants are sold aren't great light conditions. Um, so if a succulent's mm. been sitting in a dark shop all winter, it probably will have undergone some stretching or etiolation, which is just the, the plant reaching towards the light. and this is not good for succulents. They're not meant to look like fireworks. Mm. Most of them, the rosette type <laughs> species like echeverias. Um, and people go, oh, look, my plant's growing. And just the heart sinks and you think, well, okay. I mean, it's totally uh, redeemable in that, you know, something like an echeveria will grow new plants from a single leaf and you can just behead that firework and start again. But I think people underestimate the amount of light that succulents and cacti need. and keep them too warm in the winter and not enough light and that is the result so yeah probably avoid etiolated plants unless they're on the bargain table (laughs) Mm, yeah you're just starting (laughs) off a whole problem for yourself before you've even got the plant home that's right i think this is a great jumping off point for the next question too in terms of water so i think you know in my experience probably a bigger problem for people tends to be overwatering than underwatering Yeah, I'm an inveterate underwaterer, so I'm probably the opposite of most people. But I think people, I I tend to not describe it in terms of over or underwatering because I think it's kind of that's it's kind of difficult to know. Well, I see some people. I think, gosh, you are drowning your plant, but overwatering, they just don't understand what that means. And going back to my point about substrate. Um, Mm. it's not about how, it's not about how much water you're giving. It's about how the plant can drain away the water, the excess water that it doesn't need. And I think a lot of people, as opposed to either give it too much water and then allow the saucer or outer pot to sit there and collect a load of water, which is then stagnant in the bottom of the pot. Or the other thing people do is they just give a little dribble on the top of the surface of the substrate every now and again, which is just as bad because the plant doesn't get the chance to uh, to really rehydrate itself properly and it encourages roots to move up through the substrate rather than down and exposes the plant to a lot of stress. So I always say to people, you know, if you can, do it less often, but when you do water your plants, 
you know, really water them, but allow them to drain. So, you know, putting them all in a, I mean, my favorite gardening tool is an old washing up bowl and the plants, pots go into that washing up bowl and the water goes in and all this top versus bottom watering. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're water, if you're watering properly, top versus bottom, bottom watering doesn't actually matter because you're going to get the whole of that substrate damp in the process. So add the water, allow the plants to a good hour or so to fully absorb that substrate should be evenly moist and then thoroughly drain and put them back. And if you do that, you know, every couple of weeks, rather than dribbling on a bit of water every now and again, then your plants will be set for success. And also bearing in mind, you need the right substrate for that to work. But I do love self-watering systems. Um, I'm a bit of a cheapskate. I don't buy these expensive self-watering pots. I just do a method called wick watering, which I touched on earlier. And this just really involves very simply for me, uh, putting plants in a a nest of two pots in the outer pot there's some expanded clay pebbles or some stones and there's a nylon wick that goes from that reservoir into the bottom of the nursery pot or maybe sometimes more than one wick and then I just water excess water runs through the substrate into that reservoir and provided that you get the amounts uh, you're a little bit careful with the amounts of water then that leaves the plant with a reservoir from which it can draw up the water that it needs works really well for things like ferns gesneriads um calatheas marantas and those kind of plants that have quite um specific water needs in terms of needing to stay kind of evenly moist very 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 well said we touched on sunlight earlier, or light, in fact, especially when we're talking about indoor plants. Do you have anything else to say about lighting? Well, I think, you know, people say, oh, you know, we, as we've just said, watering, that's the number one problem. Really, it all comes back to light. It really right. does. Uh, you know, the, the the danger is, is that we identify a single factor with houseplants and say, well, the problem is this. But actually, you know, the law of limiting factors, which anyone trained in horticulture will know about you know tells us that actually this is all uh, an integrated network of factors that are affecting our plants at any one time and it's no good there being plenty of water if there isn't enough light and we generally underestimate the amount of light that our plants need on top of that once we realize we've underestimated it, we then do this thing where we go, oh my gosh, I'm going to immediately rush my cactus from the darkest corner of my room to my sunny patio. And then it burns. And now, you know, anybody who's been left in a dark room for six months and then goes out onto Bondi Beach is going to burn, right? So you have to, yeah. any changes you make to light should be done gradually to, to allow the plant to adapt. But generally you'll find that plants need more light than we tend to give them indoors and will thrive in more light but it has to be um, a staged process of increasing mm -hmm. light levels that's right so i guess off the back of that 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 we would call that an abiotic plant health problem which would be that mm. that sunburn which means that it's a, a health problem that's not actually from a pest or disease absolutely can you give us an insight into like maybe a few more common abiotic plant health problems indoors? Uh, well, this is a kind of a quirky one, but it happens a heck of a lot, which is children, pets, 
climbing on plants, damaging them. Yes. Oftentimes you'll see you'll see a picture <laughs> of a plant and um, somebody sends you and say, oh, I don't know what's happening to my plant. And it's kind of, you can kind of see where a cat's kind of like scratched at a plant or, um, you know, uh, uh, somebody's had a nibble and that mechanical damage that's been caused by pets or even just brushing past that, uh, or, or something that happened in the houseplant shop before you got the plant that sort of manifests itself when the plant gets home. That's a, re- a really, really common mm. factor. Of course, we have busy homes. We have pets and children moving around. So that's something worth bearing in mind with houseplants. And it's also worth bearing in mind that there are quite a few fairly toxic houseplants. Most of them taste very bitter. So children in particular tend not to like eat the whole thing because it's very bitter, but you don't want children to be eating the leaves of something like a Diefenbachia um, because it's going to leave them uh, with a trip to A&E. So that those, the, but yeah, physical damage via pets and children is a big one. Um, what else is there? Leading, so we talked about, we've talked about sunlight. I think the other one is um, allowing plants to this is, is this abiotic? I guess it is, which is people don't like to chop back houseplants. So you mm. often get like a fiddle leaf fig that is just a big, long, thin column, and then it hits the ceiling and starts to go along the top of the ceiling. And people <laughs> say, well, why does my plant look like this? And well, because it's an indoor tree that's probably not getting enough light. Plus, if you want to grow this tree indoors, you know, it wants to grow to 20 meters tall. So you're going to have to do some pruning, but people are terrified to prune plants. And so you end up with plants in weird kind of shapes and configurations, especially also things like Dracaena marginata, the dragon tree, you know, chop those plants back and they will look so mm. much better. They, they respond really well to pruning and it will allow you to keep a plant in your home. The number of time I've seen people advertising Swiss cheese plants saying, I can't have this anymore. It's grown too big for my home. I'm like, just <laughs> chop it back. Just hack away at that thing. It's going to be fine. It's absolutely going to be fine. So that's, I don't know if that's abiotic or not, but that's another thing I see a lot of. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think something that people also think is that if I prune it back to a certain cut, it's going to continue growing up with that stem. Or if I pluck this leaf off, then that leaf will grow back. But that's not actually the way that plants grow, is it? No. I mean, the the phrase is, I think, removing apical dominance, I think is the, the yeah, horticultural phrase. The so one. basically, you know, you're, you're taking away the growing point of a plant, which then sends the growth hormones to the side shoots and then allows the side shoots to grow. And as a result, you end up with a more bushy plant. Now that materializes in different ways for different species, depending on their growth habit. But generally speaking, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get growth going out to the side rather than up. And it's to do with the the, the positioning of horm- growth hormones within the plant that triggers that. And if you don't take off that growing tip, the plant's just going to keep wanting to go up. And obviously in nature, you know, th- the reason why that happens is because often in nature, the plants will be grazed by an animal. So its growing tip will be lost and that's how it adapts. Um, so we've got to kind of play the role of the herbivore. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And and even better than in nature, because we're actually using a pair of clean secateurs and we're making a clean cut. <laughs> well, let's hope so. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> that is the that is the gold standard. Yes. I, I mean, and 
it can make such a difference to a plant's appearance if you do that. And plus, then you've got cuttings that you can then propagate and make a new plant. And it's always good to have backups. And it's always nice to give plants away. Well said. So what about pests and diseases, which are biotic diseases? Well, yes. I mean, there are a fair few. And funnily enough, the one that people get most worked up about is actually the one that does the least damage, which is the scarred fly or fungus gnat. And yes, they're really not annoying. Yes, if you particularly like me growing in an organic medium that's quite rich in um, carbon, you know, you tend to get quite a lot of um, scarred flies around. And people get very upset about this because they kind of, they're these tiny black floaty flies, distinguishable from uh, from fruit flies in that they're smaller and they really are black as opposed to sort of the brown appearance of mm. fruit flies. And they tend to congregate around your head because they seek out the carbon dioxide in our breath. So they're really annoying. The, the thing that does some damage are the is the the larval form which is a small about half a centimeter long translucent larva with a black head which you'll see in your potting mix if you've got a good eyesight and they're called fungus gnats and indeed the larvae eat fungus not healthy plant roots the only real danger i think is if you've got young seedlings sometimes that they will be compromised by a bad infestation and they're just unpleasant. So people do want to get rid of them. There are a number of different ways that people do this. There are a number of ways that just people recommend all the time on on social media that really don't work. So bottom watering, top watering, fungus gnats aren't are not going to be controlled effectively by just watering from the bottom of your pot or watering a bit less. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, you might reduce the population, but you're not going to get rid of them. Um, people recommend spreading cinnamon and all these kind of things, which really are just kind of hopefully make you feel a bit better, but don't do much to the population. I don't know what your um, situation is in Australia in terms of licensing for different things, because it does vary. There's things in this country in the UK that are not licensed, um, like BTI, which is a bacteria based, um, control. Uh, but that's very popular in America and they call it, I think they call it mosquito dunks. I don't know if it's licensed where you are. Um, again, neem oil, which is a very popular house plant, uh, pesticide is not licensed in the UK. So I never talk about neem oil because I could never recommend it in my country. But the Mm. best for me, the best controls are two biological controls, which for for fungus gnats, which are hypoaspis mites and nematodes, microscopic nematodes. And they applied twice a year. They will sort out fungus gnats. You will still see a few fungus gnats, but they are extremely effective. The mites are better if you have drier compost. The nematodes need you need pretty moist compost when they are applied in order to move around and access the larvae and do their work. But those two combined are brilliant for fungus gnats and would be what I would recommend from my kind of regulatory framework in terms of pesticides. Um, But yeah, the other thing you can also do with fungus gnats, and it's more of a have I got them and how many have I got than a control um, element is sticky traps. Yellow sticky traps are 
used in commercial horticulture and you can mimic that on a smaller scale just to see how the problem is going, whether you're winning, you will trap the adult flies on that sticky trap and you can see how many you're getting and you will stop a few, but it's not enough in most Mm. cases to stop the problem entirely. Um, The other thing people often say is I'll mulch the soil. Fungus gnats are very good at finding ways into soil and they are not particularly bothered by a layer of this, that or the other on the surface. They will get in through the drainage holes. They will find a way. So while mulching can help a little bit, it's not an it complete answer. So I've gone off on about fungus gnats for a while, but it is the one thing that I get so many yeah. questions about. So that that's a big one. And then and then we've got things like red spider mite also coming um becoming more prominent uh on the houseplant scene in terms of awareness are things like broad mites and flat mites, particularly in the Hoya community, um, which are particularly difficult because you need uh, quite a lot of magnification to be able to see them, but they do cause a lot of damage. And then the old our old friends, the aphids, are you know pretty annoying as well, <laughs> and yeah, I get a classic. fair few of those <laughs> in all their different forms. We also get mealy bugs here. Not sure if you get those. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Mealy bugs and root mealy bugs, root mealy bugs, and also scale. I mean, there's so many pests yeah. to enjoy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had them all. I have had them all, and I always accept that there's going to be pests, and I realise also that. You know, you're never going to be you're never going to reach the golden day when your houseplants are completely free of anything moving on them. It just isn't going to happen, particularly if your collection is fluxing and you're buying new plants. Try to quarantine them if you can, but inevitably new things come in. So, yeah, I mean, the one thing I say with pests, I've even got a T-shirt that says this is um, I call it the hand lens gang. Get yourself a hand lens. They're yes. not very expensive and it will save you so much hassle because then you can identify what you're dealing with. Exactly right. A little hand lens. Every horticulturist needs a hand lens. Yeah. I mean, I, I really get shocked when people who I consider to be quite knowledgeable are like, oh, I don't have a hand lens. I'm like, what are you doing? I've got like mm. five. <laughs> um, yeah, I love my hand lens and it really does help you to see, I mean, not least also plant structure, like it enables you to see what's really going on and how plants are put together, which is really useful. Okay. So earlier on, we talked about taking the plant out of the pot and having a look at it when we're at the nursery. What happens when, you know, we've noticed, okay, so now the plants are getting close to being pot bound. How do we tell that? And then secondly, how do we repot our indoor plants? Great question. It's a matter of keeping an eye on your plant and the watering thereof, even before you take it out of the pot. If your plant is starting suddenly to seem like every time you water the water just runs through and doesn't seem to be absorbed and your plants may be starting to look just in an indescribable way, just a little bit not happy, that's time to have a look at the roots and see what's going on. Because oftentimes, particularly with vigorous houseplants like spider plants, you will find that you take that plant out of the pot and there's just very little substrate left. The roots have taken over and they are massing around the edge of the pot and the soil has become very hydrophobic. So in other words, it's got so dry that it just can't absorb any water anymore. So that's the point where you you need to take action. Ideally a little bit before that point, if you can. Mm. And um, 
the key with repotting is, do you want that plant to get any bigger? And if not, it's a bit like the pruning. You can actually root trim a house plant to keep it a similar size. If you don't want that big plant to grow any bigger, you know, don't let it grow any bigger. Mm. Tap off all the all the old substrate, cut back the roots, and you can replant it into the same pot with fresh substrate. That's absolutely fine. And if you get into the world of gizneriads, things like African violets, that's exactly what they do. They do not just keep potting on and potting on and potting on forever. <laughs> um, but wow. assuming you do want to get the plant a bit bigger, you've got, you know, baby plants are very popular these days and they do need, they might need repotting, you know, once or twice in every growing season. And the mantra is always move one pot size up. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never really understood pot sizes. You look at the bottom and there's these numbers and I don't really know what the numbers mean. <laughs> but all I do is just like take your pot that you're dealing with and get the pot that the new nursery pot that you're thinking of using and nest them one inside the other. And if you can kind of just get your finger between the two, that's probably about the right upgrade size that you're looking at. The reason to not put them in a massive pot. People think they're being kind. Oh, I'm going to give it a really large pot because it'll love that. Uh, no, don't do that because yeah. you're basically leaving this large sump of unrooted, damp substrate that then is the perfect environment for root rot in a lot of plants. So one size up, stick your finger between the two pots. Um, make sure you, uh, if the roots are really turned in on themselves, then do do a bit of work teasing those out and put it in the new pot and uh, away you go. People are often very scared of repotting. You know, they're worried that they're repotting at the wrong time of year. If it's a tropical plant, it's hard for it to be the really the wrong time of year. Uh, most plants will, if they need repotting, they need repotting. But do exercise caution with things like cacti and succulents and plants that do genuinely need um a winter rest you can repot them during this time but the substrate needs to be completely dry fantastic you mentioned the winter rest there so we're talking about indoor growing environments these are protected microclimates but the seasons still affect our indoor plants don't they yeah and you know plants have a genetic programming which we need to respect so in the case of I'm going to generalize here so apologies to any cactus and succulent growers who like are going to point out there are some <laughs> there are exceptions to these but anyway let's let's take a generalized view which is that most cacti and succulents come from environments where they experience a cool winter dormancy period and so I'm just going to take a sip of water here and we need to respect that indoors. I mean, houseplants are amazing and there are some plants that will be able to cope with growing all year round. But if we can, things like cacti and succulents benefit from a cool, dry period over the winter where we cut back on the watering and we uh, drop the temperature. I would say most cacti and succulents are fine down to 10 or 12 degrees centigrade can't remember what it is in Fahrenheit. Sorry. I usually Who have cares? a chart here. Um, Americans <laughs> do. I can tell you. Um, if we can give them that cool, dry rest period from kind of like in the in the UK, that's sort of November to March. It's, it's kind of like, a two, uh, I would say, a third of the year, if not a bit longer, that we're giving them that cool, dry rest period. Obviously, I guess that would be, I can't think one month that would be in the Southern Hemisphere, but I'm sure 
<laughs> you can fill that gap. Um, but you're giving them that rest period where you're reducing watering. Now, plants that I keep outside in my unheated greenhouse would be completely dry. They need to be really, really dry. Plants inside that are getting a bit warmer, but still cool, I would expect them to maybe um, get a bit of water, but really only watering them when they start to look a little bit deflated and really yeah. need that extra moisture. And that can really help with um, with just general health, but also bringing on flowers the following season. So that's a visual check that you're talking about there. Yeah. So things like the classic example being Curio rolianus, the string of pearls which is a very popular succulent killed by many, many people. Uh, and what you're looking for there in that kind of pea-like round leaf is you're looking for it to sort of look slightly deflated and lost its kind of turgid nature. And at that point, yes, you probably want to give the plant some water. Um, but the main thing that kills succulents over the winter, aside from etiolation, which we've already discussed, is people giving them too much water over that winter period combined with the wrong substrate, which they're often, unfortunately, sold in. Well said. So what are some of the other major causes for plant you know, health distress that people cause? You know, other than the, we've mentioned a couple, but what are the other ones that we haven't mentioned yet? Well, I think there's kind of a boom and bust cycle with houseplants. People buy them and they look great for a while because they're in this honeymoon period where they're still really uh, taking advantage of the fact that they've just come from a computer controlled nursery where everything was hunky dory and the light levels were perfect. And then the plant hits its first kind of winter in that home and light levels drop and the central heating comes on and maybe the plant's near a central heating vent or radiator and the plant suddenly goes, whoa, what the heck is happening here? And the plant ends up losing a lot of leaves. People panic when plants do lose leaves. It's natural for plants to lose leaves. And um, particularly when there are changes happening, the plant is moved, for example, or the plant is uh, exposed to lower light conditions. The plant's just saying, well, I don't need this many leaves. But obviously, if it starts to really drop a lot of leaves, that's usually a sign there's been some dramatic change to its circumstances. Maybe mm. it's getting blasted by dry air. Maybe it's in a really cold draft. And for some plants, that's a game over. But I always say to people, you know, give them a chance because there are so many house plants that might lose all their leaves, but might actually be fine below the surface if they're growing from a rhizome. Uh, so you're talking about things like uh, things like Oxalis triangularis, which is a popular houseplant um, here in the UK, and that will be fine if it dies back. In fact, I let mine die back every winter because they look kind of messy in the winter and I just don't like it. So I let them die back, put them in a cupboard, keep the pot dry and then start watering in the spring. Similarly with things like alocasias, which grow from corms, people often find they go into dormancy in the winter because light levels aren't good enough. Well, here in the UK anyway, maybe in Australia, you're right. Depends on which direction they're facing. <laughs> Not if they're on the south window. <laughs> uh-huh. And then and then they chuck them away. But actually there's corms in there that could have re- regrown That's in the spring. Right. We've been through this, my wife and I. Ah, yeah. And it's an exciting moment when you suddenly realize, oh, that dead house plant isn't (laughs) dead. So, you know, don't always assume that everything's dead. Um, But that that's often the cause when that heating comes on 
suddenly everything changes for the plants and it can lead to problems like um, excessive uh, leaf drop, which you do need to watch out for. And, you know, lots of people are caught out by that. You know, I do move my house plants around quite a lot because through the course of the year because of changing light levels and heat levels. And most of them are not that bothered by it and it helps them. You know, I have Uh, A fern, for example, that's absolutely fine for most of the year, apart from the two hottest months of the year where the the sunlight coming in through the roof, it's a glass roof room, will just be too strong. And that has to move for those two months. So if you can tune into light levels in your home, it really, and also things like the heating going on and adjust plants position accordingly, that can really help. So what about tools and resources that home gardeners can sort of, you know, or whether you're a professional gardener too, so that you can look after your houseplants. So this can be online resources, books, or even just tools like your hand lens. Well, talking about actual physical things, the hand lens is number one. I mean, the great thing about indoor gardening is like, it's, it's kind of cheap in that you don't need to have, you know, you don't need to have a lot of the kit that you need for outdoor growing. Uh, You know, um, as I said, my best tool is my old plastic washing up bowl and a few wooden kebab sticks which you can use to shove in root balls to add air aerate aerate root balls or also test how Mm. moist they are your hand lens and yeah you don't even need a watering can i don't use watering cans i use uh, my milk bottles that come with my milk comes in every couple of days to uh, to water so there's very little equipment that you need, which is great. Yes, of course, you can invest in a fancy IKEA greenhouse cabinet with fans and whatnot, but you don't need that for the vast majority of houseplants. Resource-wise, I mean, it's tricky because, yes, there is an amazing amount of great information out there. But if you just Google, you know, how do I look after my Kentia palm, you're going to come across lots of really poor information, as I've already yeah. hinted at. You know, don't. <laughs> Don't trust these kind of, you know, online forums where people are saying, oh, yeah, you just need to, you know, put ice cubes on your moth orchids and that's how you water them. There's a lot of terrible advice out there. So be discerning. Um, Book wise, I do love houseplant books and I have had a copy of Dr. Hessian's Houseplant Expert book since I was a small child. I still have that book. Um, I have more up-to-date copies of that as well. It's still kind of my houseplant Bible. It's a little bit out of date, but it's still brilliant in terms of basic houseplant care. There are loads of houseplant books that have been published in the last few years. Um, I love um, Daryl Cheng's book, um, I'm trying to look at it, look for it on my shelf now to remember the name. I think it might be just be called Houseplant Journal, but he's Houseplant Journal. He's from Canada. He's a very science-based um, grower. He's an engineer by trade and his approach I love. There's also a fantastic book by um, a friend of mine here in the UK called uh, The Plant Rescuer, Sarah Gerard Jones, which is very good too. So there are some good books out there. And if you're interested in plant styling, my word, there are loads of books on that on that topic as well which is of less interest to me but you know there are tons of books on that as well my one my one thing would be do not put cacti and succulents in terrariums the number of times i've seen that in books and just absolutely cringed but yeah there those are good resources obviously i mean my own podcast there's 250 plus episodes of my podcast uh dare i say it, um have a listen to that 
on the ledge. <laughs> yeah, on the ledge. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of try to bring in experts in all kinds of different areas. So whatever your interest, there will be an episode on that subject. And I've learned loads from the people that I've had on the show. So that's that's the other thing I'd say um, in a bit of self-promotion. Yes. And that show actually was influential on me when I was designing my show as well, because I was like, oh, should I do a houseplant? And then I found your podcast and I was like, nope, this is just better than I could do. What else can I do? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's funny. I started in 2017, February 2017, and I think I was the first houseplant podcast. There's been many more since, and they all are different and they all do different things. And that's wonderful. So it's, it's, you know, I often hear from people who listen to more than one houseplant podcast, but I like the fact that I was the first. Is that okay to say? (laughs) (laughs) I can appreciate that. So you've also got your book, Legends of the Leaf, as well. We should give that another plug now, too. Yeah. So, I mean, really looking forward to seeing what people make of it. The interesting thing with this book is it's been crowdfunded. So rather than a publisher kind of saying, you know, we like your idea, we'd like to publish it, I I decided to go the crowdfunding route because... I wanted to write the book that I wanted to write. I didn't want a publisher Mm. saying, oh, we want you to do it like this. I wanted Mm. to do what I wanted to do. Again, like megalomaniac podcaster here. But anyway, um, (laughs) and the great thing was that um, my publisher Unbound allowed me to do that. So more than 900 people have pledged to uh, support the book and buy the book. And it's coming out April the 27th. And I'm so pleased with it. It is illustrated by a wonderful illustrator called Helen Entwistle. So each of the 25 iconic species is illustrated by her. It's not a photograph book, Um, but it's I hope that it'll be a combination of loads of fascinating deep dives into houseplants. Plus, at the end of each chapter, there is a care guide, which kind of then takes what you've learned from the chapter and applies it to how you grow that plant. So for things like the string of pearls, Curio Rolianus, that is a game changer. I hope that will be a game changer for a lot of people when you realise how that plant grows in the wild. Um, So I'm really looking forward to seeing what people make of it and um, I can't wait for it to be out. Fantastic. Jane, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask guests one final question. It doesn't have to be on topic. It can be about whatever you'd like. What else would you like the listeners to know about? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, the other thing, this is a very different, putting a very different hat on, putting a woolly beanie hat on. um, I can tell you that my first book, The Allotment Keeper's Handbook, which came out in 2008, uh, it's been out of print for a long time now, but I've just done an audio book of that book. So that uh, allotments are kind of community, community, kind of community gardens. You basically rent a plot of land off um, the local council or a private landowner. Do you have many allotments in Australia? Is that a thing? It seems like a UK term to me. I definitely yeah. hear it a lot more from over there. So, uh, a, but any, it's a book that's aimed at anybody who wants to start growing their own food, and it's kind of uh, aimed at well aimed at revealing all the things that I did wrong when I first had an allotment. Um, <laughs> so it's for anybody who like doesn't need the kind of like perfect polished approach. Um, so I sort of have chapters on everything from choosing your plot to um, preparing your plot to sheds, to sowing seeds. Um, and it's all read by me. So you can get that on all the usual places like Audible and from my website uh, and um, Spotify as well. It's on Spotify. So if you're not sick of the sound of my voice already, you can go and listen to the Allotment Keepers Handbook. Wonderful. Thank you so much for a fantastic chat, Jane. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Jane's great value. If you aren't subscribed to her podcast on The Ledge, go ahead and do that now. Also, pre-order her new book, Legends of the Leaf. Check the show notes for links. She's given me a kick up the bum to encourage more community with you guys, which is something that I'd really like to do. Recently, listener Dylan Whiffler recommended that we speak about a relevant pest for him in Western Australia, the Polyphagus shot hole borer, which Dr. Ian Smith covered on Bug Bites. I'd like to personally invite you to email me at hello at plantsgrowhere.com with any other episode recommendations or questions you'd like answered on the show. Please let me know of any other ways that you'd like to get involved with the show. I'm all ears. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Again, check the show notes for links. And to our American listeners, I was only joking when I said who cares about Fahrenheit. Who knows, maybe you guys are right and the imperial system is the best one. <laughs>